back to the podcast. And in today's podcast, we're going to explore something a little bit outside of the field of coaching. And that's the topic of race. I'm going to be speaking with Amiel Handelsman. And I made contact with Amiel after he listened to myself and Greg Thomas and uh, Kasha. I can't remember who was in that. Apologies, people. We did a panel in last year's uh, summit, Coaches Rising Summit, and we were talking about race. And, and Amiel pointed me to some of his writing about uh, Robin D'Angelo's work with White Fragility. And I think he did an excellent job, a nuanced kind of appraisal and critique of Robin's work. We'll talk about that in this podcast. So we're going to talk today about race and we're going to talk about this the program that Amiel and Greg and Jewel Thomas are creating. Uh, Greg Thomas was a, a recent guest on the podcast called Stepping Up, Wrestling with America's Past, Reimagining Its Future and Healing Together. So we'll talk about uh, anti-racism and anti-anti-racism. We'll talk about Amiel's journey around this topic and and we'll touch into things like Albert Murray's idea of the omni-American identity and culture and race. Just a few brief words about Amiel, who is a, a coach and a deep thinker and also a podcaster. So, and I really, as I, again, I appreciated his writings on Robin D'Angelo's work, his kind of appraisal and critique. Well, let's just continue from here, Amiel. It's good to be with you today. And uh, I'm excited about our topic today. I think it's a really important conversation. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. And, you know, I've been listening to your podcast and following you for a while. And early on, we had some, I had a podcast, we had some similar guests. So I've always felt the real resonance with you. And I'm just super excited to talk today, particularly about this topic. Yeah, good, good. Well, so we're going to talk about uh, race and uh, your journey that you've been on around that. And of course, uh, you are putting out a program with Greg Thomas and, and Joel. So, yeah, I think a good place to start then, Amiel, is just give us the headline of what this program is and why you created it, because I think that will set context context for the rest of our conversation. Absolutely. So this course, we're calling it a journey, is stepping up, wrestling with American history, reimagining its future, and healing ourselves. And I am doing this together with Greg Thomas, who you had a wonderful interview with several months ago, and Jewel Kinch Thomas, who's his business partner and spouse. And what inspired this, and we'll, a lot of our conversation is about what inspired this, but in short is we have been noticing a lot of folks, particularly Americans, since we're in the United States, who felt a real deep calling to respond to around our racial reckoning and feeling a really deep commitment to doing some positive action, and wanting to embrace the nuance and complexity of it, not just for the hell of it, but because the solutions to our problems are more complex than much of the anti-racist and anti-anti-racist thinkers would have you say. And so there's an urgency to it, and we're interested in supporting others who are on the journey together. I think it's important for some people to define those terms. And 
you know, I know this is a podcast about coaching and I'd say in a broader context, like the liberation of consciousness. And so I just want to name that here. We might be saying, why, why explore this topic of race on this podcast? But for sure, you know, it's the water we're swimming in and it's a, it's a very important topic. And if you're not encountering it explicitly with coaching clients, implicitly it's, it's all around us. So, um, so that's why I want to bring this topic in the podcast. And you mentioned anti-racism and anti-anti-racism. I think that might set even a broader context for what the type of dialogue that's going on out there. Could you name what each of those is? Yeah, we are probably should start with racism, actually. Is this yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the thing that, you know, through my life, I mean, this I'll just, just take a step back and I'll answer that. Um, this is revisiting a very old journey in my life that started in elementary school and in middle school all around understanding what it means to be American and have it be an inclusive country and kind of feeling sick in the stomach by not only studying some of the past history, but I grew up in the 70s and 80s and seeing, yeah, just feeling a sense that we haven't really fulfilled our promise as a country to be a place for everybody. And so I really want to start there because the the fire in my belly is in response to living up to the ideals of the country. And also as coaches, living up to our ideals, you use the word liberation, that when we approach this issue, can we bring the best of ourselves to it and not fall into simple traps? So that's what drives me. And then in the last, really, it's been the last couple of years, a movement called anti-racism has risen up, which has some very important perspectives to offer. And I think at times can be very limiting and actually stifle discussion. And so I wrote a relatively long article about Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. That's one example. Another is Ibram X. Kendi, who has been probably the biggest thinker on anti-racism and actually read his first book, Stamped from the Beginning, and thought it was in many ways brilliant and then a couple of years later, when he wrote his second book, I started to hear him talk a little bit different way that raised some more concerns for me, just in terms of people feeling free to be fully human and all of us being fully human. So anyways, the anti-race, I don't want to get into too much of critiquing the anti-racism by describing, but basically it's one of the, D'Angelo's point is all of us are infected in a sense, whatever the color of our skin or our culture by uh, ideas. And Resma Menachem, who's my favorite of the three I've mentioned, will talk about somatically. We have racialized body trauma. So in other words, it's not about being a good person or a bad person. This is my interpretation. It's in the air we breathe and it's in our bodies. Certain false stereotypes and understandings about what it means to be black, white, or brown. And the charge, the the kind of come forward from the anti-racist community to me is largely to so-called white folks is take responsibility for yourself, explore your own feelings, your thoughts, your history. And in some cases it's explore American history. And so there's a really, really important part of that, which is like, stop denying it, stop pushing it off to the side and then it gets into some sticky waters that to me are incredibly unhelpful, which is there's only one way to do this. And Abram X. Kendi often says you're either anti-racist or racist. Any policy is anti-racist 
or racist. And that's very, that puts us in a straitjacket. Uh, I mean, I can I literally feel myself getting closed in when I say that. And with Robin D'Angelo, she's been very courageous in challenging people and organizations to t- really take responsibility for themselves and by her own admission, does things that I would call shaming that I don't think support growth. So that's the anti-racism. And then the anti-anti-racism, most of it is critiquing it from what I would call a modern perspective, an earlier perspective, which basically says, hey, listen, we need to have the freedom to speak. We have made tremendous progress. We are a modern country. Things aren't the way they used to be. And there's a lot of truth to that. We've made immense progress racially. And the anti-anti-racists can have an impact of, number one, ignoring the main point, which is that we got something to reckon with. And number two, uh, unlike a lot of us coaches, they're not talking about this as a personal growth journey, liberation. So in both of those, there's a, there's something positive offered to all of us who are taking this seriously. And then there's something that we need to supplement. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I echo, uh, at least that's been my experience um, in this, you know, engaging in this exploration myself is feeling very uncomfortable reading Robin D'Angelo's work. And uh, I, when I read your um critique of it I thought you were you know you were you would you were much more generous than I was actually and I think that speaks highly because you you actually helped me see several of the positive kind of uh, parts of the conversation she was bringing um and and yet you know I felt that straitjacket you know in this sense of you know I mean people like Brett Weinstein have you know come out and said well that book's racist you know actually because it's saying it's saying that you're um you're racist if you're white, you know, there's no, that you, you don't have any choice in that basically. So um, yeah, I felt that, I felt that. And maybe you could say a little bit about um, your own journey around this stuff. Like uh, where, where are you at with it now? And I mean, I get a sense you're in, you're wanting to have this more nuanced exploration and conversation and there's something, something liberating and possible in that. But I, I wonder if you could say a bit about your own journey around this like have you been on one side or the other or uh yeah yeah absolutely and i want to just mention to follow up something that you said which is what prompted me to to reach out to you some time ago was a coach's rising event where you were talking about this topic and you mentioned your experience of it and i felt like all right i i want to i've got some i want to share this paper with you so i appreciate your reading it And I want to just say that the first time I read, when I read her book and started writing, I was just so frustrated and I'm almost in tears because, and as I'm about to say, this has been a long journey for me. And to read someone who's such a best-selling book, say things that will, I think, turn people off from that journey, turn people off from really trying to heal the country and create more justice. Just, I mean, I was furious so my first, you didn't read my first draft, Joel, did you? No. I mean, the, the final draft was generous. The first draft, I was just incensed. And that was what became part two. I needed to work within myself and say, this is somebody who has something important to say. What's true and useful here? 
And that was very important for me to describe that because, and this will now get into answer your question. This has been something that's been just a deep commitment of mine for a really long time. So yeah, so part of my my recent journey, let me just talk about my recent journey, what what has caused me to answer the call. So I'll just say it wasn't the death of George Floyd. Two years before that, what was known as the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where uh, white supremacists were on the march with tiki torches. A lot of it had to do with statues of Confederate generals, but it was a, a very big event at, at that time. And it was shortly after our pre- previous president was elected. And one of the things that they chanted was, Jews will not replace us. And I'm Jewish. And that very day, I was signing what's known as the tuition commitment agreement to a Jewish day school, which is basically saying, all right, I'm going to identify as Jewish and have my kids go to a Jewish day school. And they're going to be at a school that some of these marchers who are going to come back to Oregon are going to know about. And I felt extremely vulnerable. Okay. People listening might be thinking, well, geez, you're talking about your own experience being Jewish. You're not really even talking about the black experience. Well, uh, yes, I am. And, let, and, and, and in a couple of ways, number one, I think we all have to have a personal stake in this. If we're just doing this just for someone else's journey, number one is it's false because we all have a stake in this. And number two, uh, it's a very thin level of commitment. And Tim Wise, who's someone who's been combating racism, he's white for years, has described this as something he's learned is you can't do this just for someone else. You have to have skin in the game. So I felt a lot of skin in the game because I didn't know whether to sign that agreement. And I felt like the futures of all of us were so intermingled because you had these white supremacists who were not exactly peaceful, peaceful feeling towards black Americans and towards Jewish Americans. And so I was like, ah. and then what it brought to mind, and this will be another connection that will take us back in time is I began to feel into the preciousness of my kids who are now the younger one just turned nine a week ago and the other one's 11, who we had a hell of a journey having them. And before we had them, we had a child who was born who died shortly after birth, who died in my arms. And as I've been reflecting back, you know what we call that? We call that infant mortality. And you know what we associate infant mortality with in the United States? Poor Black people. And not only that, Joel, when I was a freshman in college, so this is 20 years before Christine, our daughter, was born and died. My very first papers in my freshman public policy course were about infant mortality. And you know what I thought about it at the time? This is about other people, right? Mm-hmm. This is about people who are poor and Black American, Hispanic American, and I care about them and I want to make a difference. And I can say a lot more about the public policy behind that and just the sense of like social justice, but it was about someone else. And so then fast forward 20 years and we have this tremendous loss and this tremendous trauma and nobody ever told us this could happen. And we were a high risk pregnancy. We we kept going into the hospital. So I'm getting into a very personal thing here that might seem completely unrelated to racial reckoning, but it's not because you know what I realized 
um, why is it that doctors didn't tell us what to expect? Why is it that I didn't hear anything about it? Well, infant mortality is like a lot of other things in the United States, school shootings, certain health issues. It's the black American community first. A lot of folks blow it off. Next thing you know, it comes to you, right? School shootings were an inner city black American phenomenon. You know, frankly, I don't know that we did a lot about it and we haven't done a lot about guns. And then Columbine happened in the United States, a white high school. And now there's a lot of shootings at white high schools. Now everyone understandably is up in arms about it. We didn't pay attention when we needed to. So what I'm saying is there's an intrinsic benefit for the sake of our, my fellow humans who are black American, like your life matters. And it's about my life too. And so, you know, I'm speaking very passionately, but I, I think it's so important for all of us who are stepping up, who are answering the call to say, what is my skin in this game? Because when I have skin in the game, I am going to go way more energetically, draw upon my deepest virtues, step out onto my growth edge and be my best self-authored mind to reference Bob Keegan and Jennifer Garvey Berger, who you have on this podcast. And a lot of the anti-racist and anti-racist movements are really not calling forth our, our deepest liberation, our self-authored or transforming minds that a lot of your listeners are familiar with. And it takes, I've got skin in this game to be like, I'm going to go on my growth edge and I'm going to cultivate my greatest virtues for the sake of what can we do to reduce or eliminate horrendous police brutality? How do we deal with the tremendous wealth inequalities? Yes, between black and white and also between classes. And then there are a lot of other dimensions of this, but I think hmm. I probably made my point is we've got to have skin in the game. So yeah. let me stop there and hear your reflections, Joel. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really touched to hear your personal journey around this. And um, um, I really feel that you've got skin in the game. And I guess it brings up this question of um, what has that brought out of you? And, and what, what's your personal vision around this? Because, um, you know, I hear you speaking about that, you know, in some ways like that, yeah, we can access our own self-authored or self-transforming kind of around, around this topic, you know, and find our voice. And so um, before we talk about maybe what um, the, the, in the broader sense of people and what they could access, what, what for you has it brought out of you? Like, do you find, you know, do you find yourself taking certain actions or seeing certain things you didn't see before? Yeah, that's great. Really great question. Let me answer in a few different ways. So first of all, I have clients. So this is bringing things into coaching who are people of color, black American, so on, who face what we call micro inequities or microaggressions. Those are real. Now, sometimes certain people overblow them, but they're real. So what I've been doing, just very practically speaking, is taking my own skill in helping people create conversational micro habits to be at their best, to be their best self. What do you do when you're in a room and somebody just dismisses you? And there's a history of this, and it may be a white guy and you're a you know, Middle Eastern woman, for example. So one of the things that I'm doing is really taking seriously helping that set of my clients 
have a variety of powerful and effective ways to respond to those situations. Okay, so that's one. Second, I have other clients who are perhaps identifying as white who are committed to diversity and inclusion and not quite sure how to approach that. So this just informs me to listen for that and be like, hey, I heard you say this. Are you serious about it? And if yes, I want to help you with that. I've got to listen as a coach for the openings because, because there's so little freedom to speak. They might be thinking that bringing it up to me is unsafe, right? So I've got to listen for that and then say, yes, I want to, I want to support you in that. A third thing that a vision that I have for myself that is, I think, maybe part of my return to Michigan, where I grew up, um, Ann Arbor, outside of Detroit, is revisiting, rejuvenating the work that I was doing largely in the Black American community in the city of Detroit in my 20s, focusing at that time on minority entrepreneurship, business incubation, community economic development, working with pastors of churches. And that felt like my home. I've been in Portland, uh, Oregon, which is known as a progressive city. It's also sometimes called America's whitest large city. It's by no means all white. It's got tons of cultural groups. It has a black American community. But you know what? It has never really felt like my people in the same sense as Detroit and Ann Arbor do. So as I return, I see myself revisiting some of those relationships that I actually had developed. How old am I? 50. Okay. 20 plus years ago, Joel. Mm. And and then there's this course uh, that Greg and Jewel and I are doing, which is uh, another big expression of that commitment too. That's working mm. with people who are on a similar journey and supporting them on their journey. Because mm. what what's the aim of the course you're creating? You know, what would be, the ideal outcome for people participating in that? Yeah, I think getting grounded and rooted and finding one's voice is really a central aim of that. So it's easy to just fall into what we're calling the anti-racist camp. And it's easy to fall into attacking that. A lot of folks don't have a, feel like they have a place to feel rooted and grounded. And Greg and Jewel, but Greg, as you know from interviewing him, has introduced me to what's known as the omni-American vision of the country and rooted cosmopolitan, being rooted in your own culture and being broad. And the immense gifts of Black American culture to America. So there's a whole vision around this that I feel like I, he has rooted me in. I mean, he gave me a reading list. He must he, he kind of got to know, like, give Amiel a reading list. And then Amiel will know that you're serious, that he ought to learn something. So, I mean, I'm making it sound like he's a teacher and I'm a student. You know, he listens to my stuff too. It's two-way. But mostly, I've been reading that stuff. And it is a different and compelling vision. And so for people to get rooted in that and feel like, oh, there is a direction that I can contribute to my communities that is compelling to me, that takes racism seriously, and that also draws on a positive vision and is about all of us. E pluribus unum, out of many one, you know, the American motto. That is 
I mean, I'm getting more energized as I say it is just really important. And a lot of people are feeling very attracted to that. Yeah. What is it about it? It's so important. Do you feel? Well, a couple personal stories again, it really, these things are really personal and that's what we're going to do in the course is really invite people to reflect in part. This is just part of the course on their own lives. So I'm a child of divorce. When I, when I was six, my parents got divorced. So I had a bunch of babysitters because both of my parents worked. I had a lot of crappy babysitters. It just so happened most of them were what we would call white. There was one dude that fell asleep during a time he was supposed to be babysitting. And supposedly, according to my dad, I said, why are you paying him? You should pay me. <laughs> Anyways, I... <laughs> I had some bad babysitters, but one day my, and I felt very alone and I felt just my life was torn apart. You know, I mean, for anyone who's been through a divorce or is a child of divorce, that's the experience. One time, um, and I think it was one of several times, my mom brought me to a different neighborhood, dropped me off, walked me in. It was a black, I call them black American, but a black family. And it was like four or five. It was a really hot night. And here's what I remember about that experience. It was a really hot night. I was very uncomfortable. I was very thirsty. We didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have air conditioning. Okay, so I remember that. I also remember, unlike the other babysitters I had, this family cared. And when you're a kid, having somebody actually care about your feelings I'm getting a little emotional. Care about your feelings and take care of you. And there was music. And I don't remember what the music was, but it was probably R&B or soul. This is before hip hop, people. There was an age before hip hop, okay? And might have been jazz, but probably R&B. And then one of the kids there said, Mom, I think we ought to take Amiel out for a slushy." And I think that kid really just needed an excuse to get the slushy, but he was kind of like using me as his excuse, but great. So they took me out. Like they, they took me out for this slushy and I don't want to generalize that Like the black American family is more caring or more emotional or anything like that. And one could also hear this. If you are just like a strict anti-racist, like not like really, really on the extreme as, Oh, sounds like, sounds like a plantation. Like you can literally make that interpretation of this very, very personal story. And that pisses me off because this is human beings. I was just a kid. This was just a family. They saw that I was alone and hot and thirsty and they responded. And that was the first of many experiences I've had of black American teachers and mentors. And maybe a lot of folks listening haven't had that. Maybe I'm unusual. I don't know. That's luck. This is not a stir. Let me just say, there is a whole, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, allergy to stories that seem like virtue signaling. Well, let me ask you, does it feel like I did anything virtuous in this story? Or is I just a kid being taken care of? Same with all the other ones. The teacher who taught me how to think rigorously, 
I really didn't like him a lot because he made me think rigorously when I was a junior in high school. Science teacher, he would ask a question. I would answer. He would say, how do you know? Great question for coaching. How do you know? Well, for a 16-year-old, this sucks. But what it did was it challenged me to think critically and rationally. He happened to be black American male. Mm. So I had a male authority figure. And so what, what meaning am I making of this? I don't know yeah. what meaning. It's part of my story. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I was, I was curious what, yeah. What, um, you know, when we, you named the, um, the, the title, I can't say it back to you, like the Omni, uh, American that Greg Thomas talked about, um, the name, I can't remember. Can you repeat that for me? Omni American is, uh, the Omni Americans yeah. is a book by Albert Murray and that's right. the Omni American vision. Yeah. Yeah. And I was curious about connecting this story because I felt your passion as you were talking about that. And then, and then in this story too, and I'm just connecting the threads of this and right. if you, well, if, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that teacher, Mr. Broadway is his name. He, in many ways, was an Omni American or there's a term called rooted cosmopolitanism, the philosopher, Anthony Appiah being rooted in a culture, in the Black American culture, not race. Greg has really been a great public advocate for, let's understand this as a culture. This is not genetic. This is not, I have different chromosomes. I mean, we all have different chromosomes, but there's no Black chromosome or white chromosome. It's a culture. And so this teacher of mine, part of him was rooted in a Black vernacular and Black culture. He's raised, raised in it. And part of him was part of a larger American culture. And so I've never really reflected on this, but he was an embodiment of that. And I don't know his life story, but you know what I would imagine that his strictness with us probably came from his upbringing. And he probably had some, I'm just guessing. He probably had parents that said, look, these are the rules you got to follow. There's probably rules about dealing with police officers for certain officers, quite frankly, you know, which is a, a story that black parents tell their kids that white American parents typically don't, mm-hmm. although some of us are starting to. And so I think this was not conscious for me at the time. It's only actually since five minutes ago, you asked the question that I thought about that, but I've had a variety of other teachers who are like that. They're not all black American, but they're rooted. Like I'm Jewish American being rooted in a Jewish vernacular. This distinction around being rooted in cosmopolitan has really opened up a lot for me because I've had a lifelong kind of wrestling with my own cultural identity. And what Albert Murray, the late American writer, and what Greg Thomas says is, hey, guess what? You can be both rooted in your culture fully and you can be fully American. As a matter of fact, the more you are rooted in your culture and embrace the larger culture, the more American you are. Isn't that an interesting, and how, notice how different that is, Joel, from saying there's white culture and there's blacks. There's Americans and there's blacks. Albert Murray, Greg Thomas would say, baloney. And in my words, uh, there is no more, you know, there are a lot of quintessential Americans, but mm. among that group, black Americans are as quintessential as everyone else. And it's absolutely stupid and false 
to say that there's an America outside of that. We wouldn't be here without this portion of ourselves. Yeah. Including my teachers. It it, it seems such a more kind of nuanced and um, how could I put it? I was going to say liberated. I mean, that is the right word perspective to take, you know, there's, there's some, you know, it, I think it, what it comes up is like when we talked about Robin D'Angelo, that straight jacketed feeling, this feels like the opposite, you know, where there's, there's space and range and, um, you know, a kind of alchemy taking place, you know, that, that I think is, is liberating, you know, rather than stifling. And, and so I guess I wonder about the, uh, what might happen if more people, were you know uh, able to inhabit this perspective you know that what that might bring to um our relations to one another and even to the expression of culture you know because i i like um that's what comes up for me in this is like there's okay. culture is this like i think that's what came up for me when i talked to greg was like this sense of wow this is actually incredibly important because culture is um intensely creative and evolutionary and so i I just wonder what comes up for you around that or if the question might be then yeah what what might happen if more of us inhabited this perspective the first answer is i have no idea (laughs) (laughs) it's a a small question you know so yeah and let me say what i think is one of the things that's most valuable about it as coaches, we know that it's important not only to be against things, but to be for something, to have visions or stories of the future, to have positive commitments, not just to be in the language of complaint, as Robert Keegan and Lisa Lasky Leahy say, to be in the language of commitment. So the very first thing that's beneficial of more of us Forget about the futures. Just today in May of 2021, maybe it'll be June when this is published, is that when we feel a call to respond to the racial reckoning, we actually have some vision of where we're headed so that it's, it's enticing and drawing to people. I happen to think that this vision is one that is more inclusive. It, it, it's not pushing people out. And you know, Howard, I'm going to, I'm keeping referencing people. Sometimes people say, Amiel, you reference names a lot. Are you trying to uh, show that you know a lot? No, this is just how I think. All right. <laughs> I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Like I'm deeply studied and I'm deeply appreciative of the people that I studied. So Howard Gardner wrote a book about how storytelling relates to leadership and the importance of having a compelling story of the future. And you have to ask yourself, who are the protagonists in that story? This is a really good question for anybody in the conversation about our racial reckoning to ask. Who are the protagonists? And in many of this, if you pay close attention, the protagonists are not all of us. Like, they're not all of us. Um, And that's why you might have felt uncomfortable. Because this is not your, this is not Joel's story. This is not Amiel's story. You're not part of this. So the Omni American vision is an all of us story. Now it's not saying, welcome white supremacists, come as you are. We love everything about you. No, it doesn't say that at all. It's it asks something for, for, from us. 
right? It asks something from us, but it's, it's also one that allows any of us who feel like we have rooted identities like myself. I mean, I happen to be Jewish. It's a minority of the population, but I have friends who are Jewish too. That sounds like I have Jewish friends, uh, black friends. I have Jewish friends, you know, you might be Irish, have an Irish background or Italian background. Now, a lot of folks might feel like I'm just a mutt. I'm just a, a mix of backgrounds and cultures. Great. You're an omni-American too. I think it's useful to reflect on where you come from. I actually think that's valuable. And that's something that many of us do in the coaching field. Where did you come from? How did you get these commitments? Oh, from your great-grandparent on that side and your great-grandmother on this side and your uncle? That's very interesting. So when you invite people to both be fully um, universal and rooted in their own identity, you open up a lot of psychological and emotional and spiritual space for people. And that's why I think you said liberated. It's liberating. We don't have to choose between one or the other. Let me say one more thing about this. I think it's really important around for people who identify as white or just not black interpreting black American culture. And this comes from John McWhorter, the just brilliant linguist out of Columbia. Now he has this book called talking back, talking black, or maybe different talking black, talking back. And the book is basically a response to this idea. God, black black folks sound different. What's up with that? I mean, that's kind of like what, and, and when I was a kid, I noticed it and you can notice it and you can think, well, that's a different race. There must be a different chromosome there because they're talking different. And he's like, no, 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 no. McWhorter. He's like, come on, people. Have you ever heard of dialects? <laughs> this is a different dialect. And then there's another really stupid stereotype about like, well, if you speak in the black vernacular, you're obviously not very intelligent. That's also bullshit. You can, just like any accent or vernacular, you can speak. And now I'm getting over the edge of my knowing. I should probably have Greg, Greg talk about this, but he would want me to talk about it. So <laughs> you, you can talk in the vernacular, whether it's black or Jewish or anything else, you can talk in the vernacular of your culture and you can talk in the wider vernacular. Where is this really important? In organizations. I can't tell you how many people I know who've said they have to leave their home culture at the door including black American friends, but not only. And that's one of the reasons why it feels I can't wear my, I can't have my hair the way I want it to be. I can't talk the way I want it to be. I can't smile and move the way I want it to be. Mm. Maybe if Jewish, you know, one of the things about being Jewish, the joke is kind of like, yeah, we're good at complaining. I say that lovingly. I can't complain the way I want to be. Keegan and Leigh here are saying, quit the language of complaint. We want the language of commitment. I'm like, can I have a little vernacular complaining dudes? And dudettes, you know, so I, for anybody, it's like if you've coached people who say, God, I have to leave part of myself. You've heard this, right? I have to leave part of myself at the door when I come, well, when I come to the, when I walk into the office or walk into Zoom. Mm. This is basically saying in an organizational setting, who are you leaving at the door? What is that particular culture, family person that you feel like you have to leave in the door? In the omni American vision, it's like bring that in and talk in the mode of the larger culture. You do both. We need to create space for that. And boy, if you want to look at the future of diversity, inclusion, and equity, that seems like that would be an important part of it. Because 
uh, yeah, what inquiries might you invite people into? I mean, I hear one now, you know, like, uh, but but I, I like this distinction of the universe, universality and individual, you know, um, what cultures am I a part of? What line, what cultures are in my lineage? Um, so what, what, what inquiries would you invite people listening into that could be, you know, could be, could grow, help them to grow? Yeah, help them to grow. Well, let me, let me answer a, a tangential question first. Yeah. Apparently to be a good guest on podcasts, which I'm new to, because I used to be a host. You have to do this. You have to say I have a tangent. So I'm going to do that <laughs> just to show that I'm a good guest. <laughs> Not now we're doing like breaking the fourth wall of uh, podcasting. I know. I know. <laughs> That's it's, what it's called. It's really true. I like that. Because it's, it's really true. It's between us. It's like I'm learning to do this. So I, I want to just step ahead. So you've got someone who's listening who has their own journey. And then let's say you have someone in an organization that they're coaching, who's a leader who wants to make it a more diverse and inclusive environment. I think it would be good for leaders and organizations who, who, who authentically care about this, right, to open up new conversations with everybody, but particularly who feel excluded around what part of yourself do you feel like you have to leave at the door, right? And if you had enough knowledge as a leader to know, oh, I know what you're talking about when you say you can't wear your hair a certain way rather than what do you mean? What's, I like your hair the way it is. I mean, there's stupid things that you can say when someone is telling you something very precious about them, you know, uh, so you have enough knowledge about someone else and maybe things that they feel like they have to leave at the door. I'm just giving one example that comes to mind. Cause I have friends who've said this and then to open up a conversation with every, again, with everybody about what, what is it about you have to leave at the door? And then if I'm that person who's being asked, it's not like I have the answer to that question. And here now, let's answer your question. What am I going to reflect on? What is it that I'm leaving at the door? Or what are the parts of myself that I feel like I have to split off, cut off, shove under the carpet, vacuum up, right? And that will be different for every person. It might be a very present challenge that I'm having in my life right now that I don't feel safe talking about at work. Now, people are more and more in the remote learning age feeling willing to do this. It's a benefit of it. We're talking more about it. It's more of a, because we're in each other's homes, but it, we can still do. So what are those things for me? I've got to reflect on that. Now, for anyone who wants to take the Omni-American journey seriously and focus on your own rootedness, this might be part of the journey you want to take it's only part of it and might that you might not want to take, but it'd be reflecting on, I reflect on my own family. Where does my family come from? Where do my ancestors come from? My biological ancestors. Okay. Where do my biological ancestors come from? Now, Skip Gates, Henry Louis Gates at Harvard did this amazing series where he helped mostly famous people like Chris Rock and Oprah do DNA testing and learn about where they're biological ancestors came from and then interviewed them about it. And it's really, it's, there's a, a couple books, there's a, a movies and it's really a wonderful thing, but people are reflecting on where they come from. Now, any of us can do that. And when we reflect on where we come from, we're actually reflecting on what, at least in our family, which is only part of our influence, what in our family allowed us to be who we are today. This journey is, you could do this for a lot of reasons. Don't you think? 
I mean, a lot of yeah. reasons. I'm having this situated in this on the American vision, but it's like I'm rooted in something. I may not think I am, but I am rooted in, even if it's, you know, just going back one generation. Maybe I have adopt, I mean, I have biological parents and adopted parents, and that's complex, but I'm rooted in something. And I, I need to be able to go, can I be rooted in that and also participate in the larger culture? Mm. That is, that is, um, that's something we can do. Mm. Nice. And um, what, what have we not included in our conversation today that's important to include, do you think? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is for me to ask you if you have a couple of reflections that you would like to add in. So you can decline that and send it back to me, but that's in the spirit of mutuality. And because I'm interested, I wondered if there's any reflections you would like to make. Mm. Yeah, I, the, well, first of all, I feel the invitation to explore my ancestors and my lineage feels very appealing to me. You know, there's just something because I actually, I'm pretty ignorant about that. You know, um, pretty ignorant. I couldn't tell you much going back further than my grandparents. So, uh, and I, I, I like that because not just because of um, the race and cultural kind of question, but there's something very um, archetypal about it as well kind of mythical almost, you know, in the sense of, um, yeah, like understanding more about the, the, I guess it is culture in a sense it is, but it's like, you know, understanding about the, the culture that, that I'm rooted within, you know, and what, what does it mean? What does it mean to be rooted within a culture and why is that important? Um, particularly in these times where, um, there's so much polarization and that seems to leave a lot of people feeling unrooted, you know, like, or even kind of like, as we, as we talked about at the start of our conversation, I'm not allowed to have a say in this, you know, like I better keep my mouth closed or I'm, I'm, I'm a white supremacist, you know, like that just seems to have been become a, a term to, dis- to describe white people now, I've seen that happen, you know, in many places where if you're white, you're, you're a white supremacist because you're part of the white supremacist um, structure, you know. So um, whilst it could be a very uh, maybe uncomfortable but important inquiry to see how that might be true, uh, I also it, – it's very partial and, um, yeah, I, I, so this sense of being rooted – I guess I'm coming back to this this kind of, you know, this sense of being universal and individual, rooted within a culture, you know? Yes. Yeah, I'm really glad that it, um, first of all, that to hear of your curiosity about your own biological ancestors, and I'm saying biological because there's cultural ancestors. Right. Well, you know, like Stevie Wonder, the musician, is like a cultural ancestor, you know, just of mine. Albert Murray, Ralph Ellison, you know, cultural and intellectual ancestors. We get to pick our own ancestors to some degree. Um, but just to come back to your point, so I'm really, and that's a hard journey that going into our family and our family background, that isn't for everyone. And there's something really rich to be gained from that. By the way, that much of what we've been talking about for the last hour, I just want to be clear, is 
largely about answering the call. It's the first module of the journey that the stepping up course will bring people on. So it's just the first. It's really wondering about what makes this whole thing matter to me. What does this relate to in my life experience and why does it uh, why is it important? So I want to just respond to that. And then also this thing about being white supremacist. The first thing that came to mind, which is if all white supremacists had the values and vision and way of being of you, we'd be a lot better off. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so maybe that's a good thing. Um, but, but I want to address this because this is, this answers your question of what do we leave out for many of us, we enter for many of us who, you know, I actually didn't see George Floyd's murder on video. I chose not to watch it. I could tell a whole story about that, but I didn't feel like I needed to. And it would re-traumatize me for reasons that we'll talk about another day. And yet I might feel a sense of shame. God, I can't believe we do this. Ah, disgusting. I am so angry or sadness or whatever it is. But one of the things that comes up is shame. Shame is just an emotion that comes up, as we all know, right? And so we all need to have ways of working with the shame. When somebody calls you a white supremacist or says we're all, everyone is, who's white is a white supremacist, that's shaming. And uh, you can shame others. You can shame yourself. I read a lot of bios of people who lead anti-racism teachings because I like to know where they're coming from, what they have, have to do. And I recently read one that, kind of the heart of the bio was, you know, I am focused on rooting out all the white supremacist ideas within myself. I thought, okay, that's your thing. And then the second thing I thought was, shame is not a great way to cultivate virtue for very long. We got to cultivate virtue directly. And so to spend my life and all of my life energy trying to root out the white supremacist ideas within me alone that, I mean, we got to do that journey. And I've been doing it for 30, 40 years, and it's ongoing. And I, I see racist ideas and sexist, homophobic, anti-Semitic. That stuff goes through my head all the time. I'm just like outed myself as a, all those things. That stuff, so it's an object of awareness, and it's in my body. I have some form of white body supremacy. But you know what? That's just a piece of who I am. And I would appreciate it. What do you mean by would... that? Can I, can I, mind? Yeah. Um, cause this, this brings up stuff for me, you know, like what, what do you mean by your, you, that's the last statement. That this is not who I am statement. No, that I, you have a, uh, a part of you is, is, uh, your body is white supremacist. Oh yeah. What do I mean by you know, that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, and I don't know if you noticed, I don't feel guilt or shame about that. Right. Right. I don't feel guilt or any more than I feel guilt or shame about having which chromosomes do I have? XY, whatever the male chromosomes are. Like, I don't have any shame about that. That's just what I am because, and now I'm going to actually cite Ibram X. Kendi, you know, one of the anti racists who basically says, like, it's like the rain falling from the sky. You got to have an umbrella. It's just going to happen. So, this is when you mine your thoughts. And whether through meditation or through inquiry or whatever it is, my thoughts, I don't know about your thoughts. See, I'm not saying this about you, but I know periodically I have thoughts that are, I won't repeat here, that are very mm -hmm. negative about my own mm -hmm. culture, the Jewish culture, about women, 
about men. I mean, it go, runs across the board. Maybe I'm the only person in this whole Coaches Rising community who has this. I don't know. But I wanted people to feel free to admit it. It's like, yeah, okay, I got that. That's mm. the water we swim in because I grew up. I just want to say, I grew up around people. I, one of my best friends for a couple of years was a kid. Just a friend. Who's a friend? Years later, I had other friends who happened to be Black American. They said, oh, yeah. I won't mention the kid's name. Yeah, I knew that kid too. He used to say, and this kid was white and the earlier friend, he used to say, my ancestors used to own your ancestors. Mm. So one of my best friends in first, second, third grade basically had that point of view. So it must have been in the air that I breathed. But where I draw the line is that doesn't make me racist as an essential quality. Mm. And second of all, I am not responsible for things that happened before I, bo- I was born. And right. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not responsible for all of American history. I'm responsible for what happens today. And second of all, for those who work with trauma, I'm responsible for my part of the trauma. I can't even carry the whole load myself. And there's a lot of people who have taken this call seriously, who I, f- I, f- I feel sad are taking such an emotional burden on because they take it so seriously. And we've got to learn to heal ourselves and to not let shame be the guiding mood. I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah, no. I thought you said like, I, I want to I come back to what you just said, but I thought just coming back to the prior question, I thought you said like part of my, my embodiment is, is of white supremacy. Oh, thank you. I didn't answer that. Yeah, this is Resma Menicum's work. Right. Which, and this is, so it's interesting. The... Thoughts in my mind that are racist tend to be the, the stupid old stereotypes, you know, that, that go through. The, the, what happens in my body, to some extent, is fear. Fear, and frankly, I'm more afraid of a certain type of white body, light-skinned body, than black body, I have to tell you. Because mm-hmm. in our era, living where I live with, you know, white supremacists marching through town and partly being Jewish and interactions I've had with, let's just say people who are working class whites of a particular subset of that. I have a lot of fear of that group. Okay. Mm. For that's, and there's a lot going on there, right? There's a lot behind that. And there's a part of me that responds a certain way when like the other day, a guy came up to deliver an Amazon package. I told you Portland is like the whitest major American city. And when he came up to my door to deliver it and he was a big guy, dark skin, I had an immediate reaction. I was like, Whoa. And then, you know, I realized what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is very, very deeply in the reptilian Mm -hmm. brain stem. That doesn't make me a bad person. That makes me a human person. Mm -hmm. And also Menachem says, Everyone has some form of racialized body trauma, black, police, white. We all got it. That's right. all I'm saying is that immediate response. And then the question is, as coaches, what do you do after that? What do you do with that response? Yeah. And I've learned because I've learned, you know, I worked in inner city Detroit and Atlanta around hundreds and hundreds of people who have much darker skin than me. I don't learn that folks aren't out to get me. Mm -hmm. really like you have enough experience 
around the bodies that you fear who, and you might even be afraid of them, but they're not hurting you. And you kind of realize, dang, that's, that is some reptilian brain going on. Mm. So that's, I hope I've answered the question. Yeah, no, that, that totally does. Yeah, totally does. And I appreciate you putting it in that, in that perspective in that, you know, it's part of each of us and uh, that it's in within whether we're black or white, you know, I think that's because that's often the other part of the story is it's like um, white people can be racist, but people of color can't be racist. You know, that's, um, and that never struck me as being very logical. Um, and, you know, I, I just, um, I think also that's what the other thing is that, um, you know, I'm, maybe I'm critiquing the um, anti-racist side a little bit more than the anti-anti-racist side in this call, but this sense of like it being, what you said about, you can't, um, you said it very eloquently, but, you know, cultivating virtue um, is very difficult if we're like focusing on our shame, you know, the shame we might have and the the the, um, the work we have to do to rid ourselves of, you know, uh, racist uh, conditioning it's um it seems to be endless like that's the other thing the critique i've had is like where's the end game in that you know is that like endless like is yes because i i see people feeling very burdened by that you know yes very burdened it's like it's i've i've literally heard people say it's 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 endless and they feel despair about that tremendous despair and that Goodness. yeah does not feel good to me you know it it of course you don't want to you want to separate out of course it's doing that work is honorable but if it's just endless and you can never get through it all and you've just right. got to keep doing it your whole life that's where's that going to take that's us collectively painful very painful to hear and it's why it's so important to have some compelling vision or story of the future that we all can feel part of. It's also why a narrow agenda on rooting out my own internalized, like a personal, I'm calling it virtuous, but a, a personal thing of like the whole purpose of this is to root out what's inside of me or to root it out of American society. Good luck. I'm sorry. That's not going to happen. It's just, it's not, we need to root it. We need to understand it. Like I just gave you an example of a guy at the door. So that's a personal work on my part. And I was surprised that I had that reaction because I don't often have that reaction around quote unquote black bodies. It's just not, but whatever happened that day I did. So there's work to be done, but we have to have, we can't just trying to be stop something that's bad. That's why the term anti-racism sucks. Mm. Combating racism, overcoming, transcending, you know, these are better things, but just being anti something and then the second thing is, there's a notion of moods as predispositions for action. And, you know, so curiosity is a certain mood. Hmm, I wonder what's going to happen. And there's a mood of determination. Let's make this happen. There's resentment, like th that person did something to harm me and they can never make it better. There's resignation. There's nothing I can do to make the situation better. And then there is guilt or shame. I've done something wrong. And there's nothing I can do to make it better. Unfortunately, the waters, the anti-racist waters that we, many of us swim in part of the time 
part of the water, one of the elements of the H2O is unfortunately this shame. And it's not only, it's about my life, it's also about American history. If you read Ibram X. Kendi closely, you will see him often say things like, it ain't ever going to get better. Well, if you believe in life is suffering from that perspective, you're right. But that's not what we're talking about. We're basically saying like America is irredeemably racist is not a good starting point for a conversation. So the other thing is I want to repeat again, shame is a reasonable entry point into this work, right? I can't believe I haven't paid attention to this. I can't believe I did that thing with this friend of mine back 20 years ago. I can't believe I ignored police violence all this time, right? Whatever it is, I've blown it off. I haven't paid attention to it. Yuck. Okay. That's a good entryway. I mean, the question is how long does that mobilize us to do good things? And I think what you're saying, what I'm saying is not very long. Like maybe it recurs. It just, it's not as, as a sustained mood to be in. I've done something wrong. I can make, never make it better. Yeah. I mean, every time I say it, I want to, just curl up and. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I think this has been, a, you know, I want to say thank you, Amiel, for uh, such um, the authentic way, the vulnerable way you've shared your own journey around this work and uh, that you're working with Jewel and Greg to put this program out in the world. I really appreciate that. And I'm just, maybe you could tell us how we can find out more about that. Great. So, the one place I know you can go to, depending on when this is published, is my website, which is amielhandelsman.com, A-M-I-E-L-H-A-N-D-E-L-S-M-A-N.com. And if you uh, sign up for my mailing list, I will make sure you hear about the course and possibly in the show notes to this course, depending on the timing, we'll have a link to Stepping Up. And that's the name of the course, Stepping Up, Wrestling with American History, reimagining ourselves, reimagining its future and healing ourselves. See, I don't even know the title that well, <laughs> but it's, it's the work that matters, man. It's the work that matters. So yeah, if anyone, if you've been, if you're curious, if you're interested, I would love to have you re reach out. Um, the course starts in September. We're going to have a couple of a free live events in July. So I think this podcast will go out in June. We're going to have a couple of free live events in July to get to know us, us to get to know you talk more about this journey together. Uh, and um, also, if you if you happen to get onto my mailing list and you want to send me an email about this podcast, I will respond to you. Because guess what? I'm not famous enough to be able to blow off emails. <laughs> <laughs> I write, I respond to everybody who comments on something I've said or done. <laughs> and sometimes it's actually created some great friendships. Yeah. So that's that's how to reach me. But Joel, totally, I feel a lot of gratitude toward you for having me on a great conversation, bringing yourself into the conversation. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks, Emil. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.